0: If the fire alarm goes off, don't be alarmed. <laughs> it's just our smoke machine. So our smoke machine sets off the fire alarm. You've already heard it a couple times tonight. So we're trying to solve that as we speak. If it doesn't go off again, we might have cut some wires, but uh we won't have a <laughs> we won't have a fire alarm in the middle of service. Is it it's a heater's on because it's 8 degrees outside. It's 80 up there. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah 65. So join me in Isaiah 65 and we'll, um, we'll take a look at what the Lord has for us uh, this evening. We're almost done with Isaiah, so I don't know how long we've been in there, but it's almost over. So uh, Jeremiah will be next. We continue to work our way through the Old Testament. We started 10 years ago in Genesis. And uh, we're almost to Jeremiah, so we're more than halfway. In the next 10 years, we should get the rest of it done. So, maybe faster, we'll see. But, uh, in Isaiah chapter 65, the last couple of chapters of Isaiah kind of tying together all the prophecies of Isaiah. And if we keep in mind, the overall theme of Isaiah is answering the question of how do... How do I get from this person who, is, who falls short of the glory of God, whose righteousness is like filthy rags, how do I become the person that God wants me to be uh, filled with his righteousness, being holy? And ultimately, God tells us. He tells us in Isaiah chapter 6 right, that we, we arrive at that place as a result of God forgiving our sins. Isaiah chapter 53 lays out for us that there's going to be a suffering servant, someone who is able to take upon themselves the sin of the world. And we discover that that person is Jesus Christ, right? And so the way that we become, that the nation of Israel becomes who they should be, how you and I become how we should be, is by recognizing the forgiveness of God. Now, as we work our way through, there's other prophecies dealing with uh, heaven, dealing with with a new heaven and a new earth, we're going to look at that tonight and discuss a little bit about that. But as we also as we go, you, you're going to come up against the phrase "the day of the Lord." You've heard it a number of times, and we need to recognize that the day of the Lord is like two days: one day, the day of redemption, in which is included a new heaven, new earth, uh, new creation. But in order for all that to happen, there has to be the judgment of the wicked. So the other side of the coin on the day of the Lord is the day of judgment. One side is the day of redemption, God fulfilling the purpose for which creation began. And then the other side of the coin is that means that the wicked are judged. Because new heaven, new earth, new creation, no wicked are here. So God's going to purge wickedness. In the book of Ezekiel, you have a battle a lot, of, a lot of people, some prophecy people, think that, that that battle is dealing with an enemy who invades Israel, God saves them, and, and that that event occurs right before the rapture. I don't uh, necessarily believe that. I, I think the story is the same as Revelation 19, Revelation 20. Gog and Magog are an example of all the wickedness and all evil in the world and one day the point is one day God's going to put it down so there will be one culminating battle right that ends wickedness forever I think that's the point Um, how that all fits in our eschatology is always the challenging part so um, I don't know and if anybody else who's a scholar is honest with you they should say the same thing because they don't know either we we are guessing, right? We're trying to put the pieces together. I like what Kathy said for the women's retreat. I like that she said uh, we want a biblical foundation for our imagination, and that's true in eschatology as well. That we we we're trying to imagine how that's all going to work based on what the Bible tells us, right? But the, but the things are not always as clear as as folks. Uh, would like them to be so but i'm okay with this part one day god will put down evil for all time one day there will be a new heaven and a new earth we all agree on the end right it's just how did we get there well you know i don't know i I have an idea you know i think that that uh, the rapture of the church comes we enter into a time of tribulation the nation of israel turns your eyes back on uh, messiah and jesus returns And we all live happily ever after. But there's a lot of questions intermixed in all of that. So so as we look at Isaiah 65, that's kind of what's going on in Isaiah 65. You're going to get first the, the back side of the coin. He's going to talk about the rebellion of the nation and the ultimate judgment that will come. And then he's going to talk about the other side of the coin, new heaven and new earth. So let's take a look. Isaiah 65 verse 1. He says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. Ultimately, Isaiah 65 begins with God saying, and this is a, basically a discussion between God and his people, the nation of Israel. And what he's laying out is, look, I'm, I'm looking to the Gentiles. Now that's not new, that's something that's been talked about from the very beginning, that the nation of Israel is going to be a light to the Gentiles. But what God is saying here is, my people don't want me. One of the things that it says in John chapter 1 about Jesus when he came, is that his own did not receive him, right? He's rejected by his own. Isaiah fifty-three says the same thing. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. We turned our face from him. It's all of those are statements of derision. You know, this guy's no good. We don't want him. That's the whole point of the suffering servant who came to bear the iniquity or the sin of the world. First John tells us in First John chapter two. So, so when we look at it, the Lord saying, "I was ready. I'm ready for." To to open up, he he gives a similar statement in uh, in Moses when Moses is is uh, talking to the Lord. The Lord says to Moses one time, "You know, what if we just start over? What if I just wash my hands of these these people? They they fail me all the time." Uh, you remember Moses said, "Oh Lord, don't don't give up on them." He intercedes for the people now. Whether or not that's God trying to draw that out of Moses, because Moses spent a lot of time mad at the people, if you remember. The reason Moses doesn't go into the Holy Land is because Moses was angry with the people, and he hit the rock instead of speaking to the rock, you remember? So, And God wasn't angry at the people, so, so maybe the Lord's trying to draw this out of him. And his focus is going to be on Israel here in just a moment. In the next verse, he's going to focus on Israel and why God's saying, I'm, I'm ready to be sought by the Gentiles. Now, God's going to save the Gentiles. We're probably mostly Gentiles here. I don't know everybody's background. But but um, uh, that salvation has gone to the Gentiles. That was part of the purpose of what God was doing. But the Lord is saying, look, I, I am... Uh, Uh, I'm ready to be sought by those who haven't asked for me. You know, the extension of salvation to people that weren't looking. And ultimately, you know, the story of God's revelation is a story that God revealed himself to people. Nobody was sitting out in the desert saying, God, if you're real, show me. That's not how it happened. God went to Abram, right? And he showed himself to Abram, and he said, Abram, go to a place that I will show you. And Abram said, okay, I'm ready to, to see if there's something more than all these other things I've experienced in my life. So Abr- Abram believed God, and it's accounted unto him for righteousness, right? He follows the Lord, but he wasn't seeking God. God sought him. The way we come to the Lord, the way we know God exists is because God reached his hand toward us first. Not the other way around. It was God reaching us. The way we're saved, God reached us. When we were sinners, Christ died for us, right? That wasn't us pleading to the Lord, Lord, save me, work out some way of salvation. No, God, before the foundation of the world, understanding the the weakness of man, Jesus was ready. Jesus, the, the purpose of his... Uh, uh, work of salvation was already in the work. So God responds to people who don't ask for Him. A desire to bring light to the Gentiles. The Lord revealed Himself when they were not called by His name. And that goes two ways, right? One, the Lord's going to reveal Himself to Gentiles who are not called Israel. Israel is governed by God. So, but also when God called Abram, there was no Israel, there was no nation. So when he, when he began to build a nation uh, for himself to be a light to the rest of the world, he did it when there was nobody called by his name. So the things that we want to understand is that God's the first move. God's always made the first move. Our job is to respond to God's move, right? You get what I'm saying? But God's the one who, who broke the, the silence you know, he's the one who made that initial, uh, movement. And so in Isaiah 43, 7, it says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So, so everyone called by my name is, a, is it's probably a bigger category than just the nation of Israel. In Isaiah 63, it says, and all nations will come to your light. The kings to the brightness of your rising. That's talking about the Israel that becomes who God wants her to be. And that Israel, as we look throughout Scripture, is going to include both Jew and Gentile. Everyone who gets saved. Those who will be governed by God. That doesn't mean that God doesn't have a plan for national Israel now. It just means when the Scripture is talking about it, the scope is wider and sometimes we tend to understand so here's the description of why God is saying this he says in verse 2 I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people so God's saying I've been reaching out my hand to my people all day and they continue to rebel they continue to reject to turn their back who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. They're walking in a way that's not good. Now Paul, when he writes Romans 10 uh, verse 20, he, he talks about this. He says, so Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask of me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All day long, God saying, "I'm, I'm still, re- I'm still here, still reaching out my hands to the people who are rejecting me." They walk in a way that's not good. In the book of Proverbs, we're challenged to walk in wisdom, which is a parallel with the idea that Jesus, when He comes, He says to everyone, "What? Come, follow Me." Lady Wisdom does, makes the same claim in uh, Proverbs chapter one. Come. Follow me. Walk the path of wisdom. And so they, they need to walk in a way that's good, but they walk in their own way, right? They follow their own devices. Proverbs 14.12 says that there is a way that seems right to a man. One of the things that I think we each have to come to the realization of and that is helpful is that there is an ultimate standard. The question you need to answer is, what is your ultimate standard? Is your ultimate standard yourself, your own reasoning, your own ability to to reckon through something? Or is your ultimate standard the Lord and His Word, what He's given us? One will lead to life, the other does not. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. There's only one path that leads to life, and that's following Jesus, right? Come follow me. When he stood, when God stood before the children of Israel, and he said, Look, today I've set before you blessing and cursing, life and death. What did he tell the people next? Choose life. Choose life. Come, follow me. So these people walk in a way that's not good. They follow their own devices, their own understanding. Uh, Proverbs would also say, right? To trust in the Lord with how much of your heart? And lean into how much of your own understanding? Right. We don't want to lean into our own understanding. Why? Because we don't know good from evil. We don't know it. We think we know it. We're pretty sure. Right? How many times have we ever made a judgment about somebody uh, and been wrong? That ever happened? We made a judgment like, oh, they're no good. Or maybe we said, oh, they're, they're going to be fine. And we're wrong because we don't have the, the tools. You see, back in Genesis, in the fall of man, Genesis chapter 2 and 3, when we look at the fall of man, what happened is mankind declared his independence from God. I don't need you to tell me right from wrong. I'll do it for myself. And so the point of the story as we read it is, we have not done such a good job of that. And so we don't know right from wrong, we need an ultimate standard. And so God has given us one. Here's the ultimate standard. Will will we follow it? Will we obey what God's ultimate standard is is laying out for us? Well, he goes on in verse 3 of Isaiah 65, To describe the people, he says, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. Well, that seems a little odd, no? So they're provoking the Lord to his face. How is it they're provoking him? To sacrifice in gardens is a statement that that describes sexual immorality today. For them in those days, if you wanted to be sexually immoral, you didn't go to a club or just decide to go out for drinks and see what happens. You went to the gardens. And in the gardens, you would meet up with a a priestess. Uh, You would make a sacrifice. And part of your sacrifice would be a sexual act. And people were pretty stoked about that. That was not a hard sell. That kind of a religion, that's easy. And now, ultimately, what would happen as a result is many of the priestesses would become pregnant. So they would offer their babies on the altar of Molech and sacrifice their children. That was not, again, that was not uncommon in the world. Everybody knows, every historian knows that that existed. Those same things still exist today. We just call them by different names. But it's describing the same thing. You're making sacrifices in the gardens. You're... You're going out to be promiscuous, to have sex with somebody you don't know just for the opportunity to do that. And you don't have to worry about anything. You will have no responsibility because if there's any seed that takes place after that, that will be another sacrifice that will be offered again. God called this provoking him to his face. Provoking him to his face. It's not that God is the the giant killjoy, right? It's that God... Has a place and a time for everything under heaven. Isn't that what Ecclesiastes said? There's a time and a place for everything. Is there a time to dance? Uh, Bible says there is. Is there a time to rejoice? Bible says there is. Is there a time for sex? Sure, Bible says there is. There's a purpose for everything under heaven. What is your ultimate standard? If it's your own desires, then sometimes that leads us down a path that doesn't bring life. And the reason why God could point to that path and say that path doesn't bring life is because the culmination of that union ended in death. It was taking a life, not giving a life. So he's saying, hey, you're sacrificing in the in the gardens, and then secondarily, he says, you're also uh, making uh, uh, bricks, altars of brick. You're making sacrifices on... On uh, offerings of bricks. Now God very specifically in scripture said. When you make an altar don't ever use a brick. Now isn't that weird? Why would he say that? Because man has a tendency to glorify the altar. And God wants to glorify the sacrifice. Because the sacrifice is what pointed to his son. The altar that's just the place where someone's. Something is killed, right? That's where the place where it dies. So God would say in Exodus twenty twenty five, if you make an altar, make it of stone. Don't let any tools touch it. If you do, you profane it. Why? Because now the attention will be on the beauty of the altar and not the beauty of the sacrifice. Deuteronomy 27 5 he says in there you will build an altar to the Lord your God an altar of stones with no iron tool on them you will build an altar to the Lord your God of uncut stones because God wants the focus on the lamb not on the bricks. Not on building some beautiful thing. So the, here's the question. One is a question of, of a pagan uh, worship. And the other is a question of of wanting to worship God your own way. And both provoke the Lord to his face. Because God, he's the one who said, this is how I want you to come to me. Come to me like this. And we say, oh, that doesn't really matter, does it? These things don't really matter. What the Lord is saying is they do. They, they matter to him. You provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens, making offerings on bricks. What else did they do? Look at verse 4. Who sit in tombs, spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh, and the broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. So now he's talking about uh, uh, necromancy. Necromancy was seeking in knowledge... Not from God, from another source. How would they seek knowledge from these other sources? Well, they would sit in tombs. Try to commune with the dead. They would go to secret places, seances, places where they were waiting to hear a word of wisdom from the dead. Um, and then, again, you have the same idea. And rejecting God's way. God had given Israel strict dietary regulations, Right? And again, it's a question of saying, well, I don't have to do this God's way. I don't have to do this. This is, this is dumb. Now, later on, God's going to repeal it anyway. But the point is, if, if God's the one who's made the first move and told us how to draw near to him, shouldn't we come his way? Or should we just say, nope, I, I know the best way. God doesn't know that. Uh, I, I know So we, again, it's a question of ultimate standards. Will you be obedient to what God's word has laid out for us? We want to follow his plan. In verse 5, you see the pride that wells up in the people. Look what they say. Who say, keep to yourself or stay away from me. Don't come near to me for I am too holy for you. Then the Lord says, these are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. So he's saying, then you you filled up with, with religious pride. You're, you're, you're practicing these things, so that's the reality. But, but then you say, stay away from me. Now, who are they saying stay away from me from? What was God's reference to in verse 1? In verse 1, God's reference was, I'm, I'm ready to be sought by a people who, who haven't asked. right? The, so what was it that the Jew would say? The Jew would say a Gentile was just someone who God made so that hell could burn hotter just fuel for the fire so stay away from me you're unclean you're unclean god said that's smoke in my nostrils now it's a it's an idiom it's a figure of speech. what's it mean you ever sat around a campfire and you're sitting there having a great time and then whatever happens the wind shifts and all the smoke blows in your face yeah how much of a pleasure is it now right we want to get up and move so God's saying, you're like smoke in my nostrils, man. It irritates me. It's irritating, this, this smoke that is coming into my face, and you're like a fire that burns all day. What, what would be a way we might say that today? You're, you're like smoke in my face, you're irritating, and you give me heartburn. Right? You're like a fire that burns all day. It's not, the point is, it's not pleasing God. It's an irritation to the Lord. Our religious pride. Our, you know, I've... We as people, as human beings, we have a tendency toward pride. Toward being proud of our own righteousness or our own accomplishments. And that's not always... It's not always bad if if there's a balance. You know, but that's a... Unique balance, right? If we recognize that the things that we accomplish, we accomplish from the Lord. That's what we learned from Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar looked at his kingdom and said, man, I'm a great king. Look at this kingdom I built. You remember? And God said, what? No, Nebuchadnezzar, I I provided this for you. No. No, God, you're crazy. No, God said, no, I'll show you. And Nebuchadnezzar went crazy for seven years. And after seven years of being loony outside his brain, when he came back to his mind, he still had a kingdom. How did he have a kingdom? Because God held it for him. Right? It wasn't something Nebuchadnezzar did. He was crazy. He was eating grass. Remember? He had long hair like I did until a couple days ago. (laughs) He had... He had all these other things that were going on. But God showed him, no, I'm the one who has given this to you. So we don't, want to be, we don't want to be proud in our accomplishments. We can be proud in what God has accomplished through us. That at least acknowledges God's place. That's a hard thing for us. It's way easier for us to walk in pride. But that places us in one of seven things that God hates very first one on the list. Proud look. So we don't want to be like that. So then God says, okay, so this rebellious attitude, what's going to happen with it? In verse 6. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay it into their lap, both your iniquities, your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. Basically, the Bible teaches continuously that man will stand before God and be responsible for what he has done. Both your father and you. In Ezekiel, God says it like this. Every man will give account for his own sin. Now, when we come to that place of judgment, there's only two options. You stand accountable before God for your sin... Or you're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. And you stand before God covered by his sacrifice. There's only two ways to go before his judgment. So God says, it's written, I won't keep silent, there is a judgment. There will be a judgment. If God doesn't judge us now, if if lightning doesn't come out of the heavens and strike us, that doesn't mean there's no judgment just means we have a patient, long-suffering God who's giving us time to repent, right? To turn, to receive, to respond to the call that he initiated. So this judgment that's coming for the righteous, or for the rebellious, if they don't repent. But then, immediately, when he talks about the judgment of the wicked, he's always going to talk about deliverance for the faithful. So, thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, Do not destroy it, for there's a blessing in it. So I will do for my servant's sake. I will not destroy them all. God does not destroy the righteous and the wicked. God, what God says is, I know how to, to deliver the wicked to judgment and the righteous to salvation. God knows. Ultimately, God's judgments are right. And so the illustration of God saying, look, the wicked one day will be judged. And the reality is every man, woman, and child on earth is the wicked. But if you're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, God knows how to deliver you. God knows how to deliver the faithful. Look at the inheritance that they have. For I will bring forth offspring from Jacob. And from Judah, possessors of my mountains. My chosen shall possess it, and my servant shall dwell there. So even though I judge the wicked, the faithful are going to inherit the land. They're going to have a place. The, the point, you know, so often people focus on the, on the point of, well, the, the, the people, they're going to inherit the land. The nation of Israel is going to come back and, and have Jerusalem, and, and they do now. But I would say, oftentimes, what the prophet is saying is that when God judges the wicked, the righteous have a home. You're going to have a place. It's not that you're all just under the same condemnation. The Bible would say in Romans 8, chapter chapter 8, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation in him. Here's the impact. What's what's going on? The illustration is: Hey, I'm not going to destroy the righteous with the wicked. They have an inheritance. They're going to have a home. In verse ten, here's the impact. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks, and the valley of Acor, a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. So, not only the idea will you have a home, but Sharon who is a pasture today. It's a fertile field. But it's more well known for the battles that have been fought in it than for the pasturing of flocks. And the Valley of Achor, well, it's famous for a guy in Joshua chapter 7. You guys remember the story? His name was Achan. God said, when you go into Jericho, none of the booty is yours. None of the gold, none of the silver. It all belongs to me. So you give it all to me. And Achan said, oh, God can't really want it all. So he kept some, rather than dedicating all that to the Lord. And so people died. People died because God's blessing came off of the nation of Israel. And they went to battle thinking they could win, because God was with them, and God wasn't with them. God says, whoa, I told you not to take anything. Somebody took something. There's a way that seems right to a man. What's the big deal? Well, what's the ultimate standard? Is the ultimate standard going to be what God says? Or is the ultimate standard going to be what I? Who cares what it was? If God said, go into a rubber band factory and you don't get any of the rubber bands, they're all mine. The point is, who's the ultimate standard? Is it God? If it is, then don't take any rubber bands. Well, shouldn't I get a rubber band? No, not if God said it's all his. Who's the ultimate standard? The problem is many times the ultimate standard is me. And I say, Well, this should be justified, right? So Achan took rubber bands. And it cost him and his family everything. The that's what it does. The illustration then becomes people say, Well, why is it so harsh? You know, why not just forgive them? There's a lesson to be learned, no? God doesn't judge everyone immediately if he does it's not good so will we follow the standard that god's laid out for us will we say okay this is what god said it doesn't matter what it is god said you can only wear blue pants well here's how you'll know whether or not you're the ultimate standard or he is well that's dumb i only have brown pants get rid of them We're blue. The question is a question of who is the ultimate standard? You or the Lord? We think today that we have to be able to justify God's commands. Why? It's a question of ultimate standards. Who's the ultimate? You or God? If it's God, then whatever God's asking for, he can have. Whatever he wants, we can lie down and let him... Take these things. But the Valley of Achor, also Achor means trouble. So the Valley of Trouble. So in the Valley of Sharon, which is more famous for battles, it's going to be a place to pasture flocks. And the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble, will be a place where herds can lie down. Why? Because the wicked's gone. When the wicked's gone, then there will be Peace. Hosea 2.15 has a similar thing. It says, And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. God is ultimately providing not only uh, an illustration that he doesn't destroy the righteous and the wicked, that they have an inheritance, but also... The things that were used for war and that meant trouble in the past are going to be places of peace in the future. In verse 11, he talks about the destruction of the wicked. Verse 11, But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and fill cups of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter. Because when I called, you didn't answer. When I spoke, you didn't listen. But you did what was evil in my eyes and chose what I did not delight in. The wicked are those who forsake the Lord. Listen, the Lord said, I called, you didn't respond. It's not that God said, I didn't call them. I didn't reach out to them. I didn't provide opportunity. No, God said, I called and you did not respond. The, the invitation went out. You remember the story Jesus told in Matthew, I want to say 22, but somewhere around there. Jesus said that the invitations were sent out for a wedding uh, banquet. And the people responded, I'm just too busy. So the king said, send the invitations to everyone. Because my people are too busy. My people have too many things going on. So, the invitations go out. Whosoever will can come to the feast. But you have to be clothed in a wedding garment, right? You have to put on the righteousness that the king has provided for you. So, the destruction of the wicked come. But then, right next to that, you have the delight of God for his servants. Look at verse 13. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you will be hungry. My servants will drink but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants will sing for gladness of heart, but you will cry out for pain of heart and wail for breaking of spirit. For you will leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. The judgment of the wicked, the deliverance of the righteous. But The righteous are, keep in mind, that's not our righteousness, right? It's the righteousness he's provided. Why? Because he called and we answered. We responded to his provision. So then he says, so what's the future then? Okay, if we have one side of the coin, the the day of the Lord, the judgment of the wicked, and the difference, the separation of the sheep and the goats, right? Matthew 25. So, what's the future? What's What, what comes after that day? It says in verse 17, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So there's there's a couple of things there. First, there's the ending of the old. The old things are gone. And everything becomes fresh, new. And there will be a rejoicing over the new, not a sorrow over the old. The old things will pass away. Behold, all things will be made new. And not only is there a new heaven and a new earth that we can't uh, even fathom, right? Instead, we use a biblical foundation for our imagination. Okay, so the Bible says streets of gold. Maybe there's are streets of gold or maybe just it's so beautiful. That's the closest thing I can relate it to. The Bible describes the new heaven as a city. Why? Because for ancient man, the city was a place of safety. Where you were safe from the wicked. If you lived out in a house not behind city walls, you could be robbed any time. All you needed to have was a, somebody who came by that was bigger and stronger than you. So being in the city, that's where all the wealthy were. Was. That's where safety was. So how does God describe the new creation? beautiful city with big gates. And walls, you don't have to worry, because the wicked will not ever be there. Does that mean it will be a city? I don't know. I just know what God has made is amazing, beyond our comprehension. In fact, the things that he lays out for us, the things that he tells us to focus on, he says, I want you to focus on, on this, verse 19, there will be no more tears. You ever heard that before? He says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more will there be heard the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. In Isaiah 25, he said, he, God, will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, right? What's that sound like? No more sorrow, right? No more sorrow. All those tears wiped away. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day. Behold this is your God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. No more tears. Revelation twenty-one four says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be death no more. Neither mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And Jesus said, Behold, I make all things new. So there's an ending of all the old. All the things, all the old familiar pains that that are a part of shaping our character, right? The things we suffered growing up, the things we lived through, the things we did to others, or the things that were done to us. All that's gone. He's making everything new. In fact, he's making everything so new that the Bible says, in the Old and New Testament, he's going to give you a new name. Because your character is so transformed, you don't resemble you anymore. You resemble a new creation created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has appointed that you would walk in them. God has a purpose and a plan and a thing that God is accomplishing. So tears are wiped away. Verse 20 tells us that everyone's going to fulfill their purpose. Look, it says in 65, No more will there be an infant who lives but a few days. So no, no. The, keep in mind we're Living in the world of poetic metaphor. So we can say literally they'll, they'll they'll have babies and they'll never die. But we will have another problem. How are we having babies in heaven? I don't know how that all works. That creates more questions, right? Or we can say, no, babies won't die anymore. They won't die not having fulfilled their purpose. Look at the next thing that he's describing it to. Nor an old man who doesn't. Uh, fill out his days. Someone's not going to die before their time. There's not going to be the, the part where you don't fulfill your purpose. You didn't accomplish. You, never, you didn't do the thing. How many people have passed into eternity having lived a wasted life? How many have wasted their life on drugs, alcohol, partying, uh, made a choice when they were in high school to go out drinking with their friends, got in an accident and died. The Bible says that doesn't happen anymore. In the new heaven, and the new earth, nobody doesn't fulfill their purpose. There's no more tragic deaths that were too early. Not an old man, not a baby, not a young man. Now the idea is there is no death. But the point is you will fulfill your purpose. We always ask the question, what will my purpose be? He doesn't tell us. Maybe you will be the fishing game officer on Pluto. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. He doesn't tell us. But he does say you will fulfill your purpose. For which you have been created. And that will be more satisfying than you can even imagine. Because still, in the night calls of regret, we wonder if we have done what we should have done. Right? Finished all the things we should have finished. But God says, you, you're gonna. A sinner, a hundred years old, will be a curse. What's that mean? Well, a young man shall die 100 years old. So they'll say you're young if you were able to die at 100 years. And a sinner, if you're still a sinner for 100 years, you're going to be a curse. What's that mean? Well, God's patient with our failures. If you wait 100 years to repent, you're dumb. Right? We want to be people who are quick to repent, not short. So the point is God's long-suffering. Hey, if you, if you were to, to wait 100 years, well, then, he says, you'll be accursed. But you won't. You won't. Why? Sin's going to be done away with. You don't have to worry about, about time, shortage of time to repent. The point is, look, when we get to this place... You will fulfill your purpose. Sin won't stop you from fulfilling your purpose. Tragic death won't stop you from fulfilling your purpose. It is going to be accomplished. Verse 21. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. It's right. Sounds like you got stuff to do. Building, planting, taking care. Yeah, it's a little different than sitting on a cloud floating around playing a harp. Right? There's a purpose. There's things that will be built. There's things that we will eat. And they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to bear children, but it means no longer is there the idea that that the only reason I existed was to be killed by my enemies. Nope. You're not going to have to worry about those things anymore. The former things have all passed away, for they shall all be the offspring of the blessed Of the Lord and their descendants with them. And then listen to this. Before they call, God says, I'll answer. So you'll be thinking, you know I need to ask God something and you'll hear him. Oh yeah, that's okay. But I didn't ask yet. I know, but before you ask, I'm going to answer. Won't that be nice? How many times have you prayed a prayer only to wait long days, months, years maybe for an answer? God says... Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I'll hear. So that communication with the Lord is going to be so much greater than the communication we have now. And ultimately, the curse is gone. The wolf and the lamb will graze together. Okay, so that whole the lion and the lamb thing, that's not in the Bible. You know, the lion and the lamb laying down together. The lion and the lamb is in the Bible. It's describing the two comings of Christ. He came as the lamb, and the second time he comes as the lion. Right? The lion of the tribe of Judah, it's always the wolf and the lamb. Because wolf eats lamb. All the time. So the point is, hey, the wolf, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. The dust will be the serpent's food. That means he's not going to eat you. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Nobody, no pain, no sorrow, no destruction, no murder, no crime. Because the wicked have been purged. Evil has been put down. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9 says this. It says, The wolf... Shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with a young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child will lead them. Always like that. The cow and the bear will graze. <clears throat> uh, the young shall lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play over the whole of the cobra. And the winged child will put his hand in the adder's den. Rattlesnake den. He'll stick his hand in there. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. No premature death. No tragedy. All those things done away with. The point is you have the two sides of the coin, right? You have God's ultimate redemption. New heaven and new earth. That's attached to God's judgment of the wicked. The wicked are purged in the new heaven and the new earth where there will yet be responsibilities, building, planting, sowing, reaping, fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. Whatever that is, we'll know it then. Now we see through a glass dimly, but then we will know as we are known. That's pretty cool. All that happens in the redemption and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the ultimate salvation that we have when we see him face to face. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We can study your word. Thank you for uh, the truth of your word, what your word lays out for us. God, I do pray that we would settle the question of ultimate standards. Who's in charge? Me or God? And will I be obedient to what his word calls me to? Lord, I pray that uh, God each would uh, be fully convinced in their mind, Father, to follow you, to be obedient, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. I want to follow the way of the Lord. And look forward, God, to the place that you have for those whom you have made righteous. For God, you are able to do abundantly above all we can ask or imagine according to the power that works in us. Lord, we have been redeemed. But God, you are still looking. You said, I was ready to be received, called by a people who didn't know me. God, you have a plan and a purpose in the redemption and the redemptive work that you're working, Lord. And what a plan it is. Look so forward to the culmination. But now, today is a day of salvation. May we take the truth of your word to any who will hear. And if they hear your call, may they respond. And if they respond, God, you say you will save. So Lord, we thank you for your work and we give you praise in Jesus name. Amen.